Welcome to First Fuel, a fortnightly podcast bringing you perspectives on the role of energy efficiency, energy management and demand response in the energy transition taking place in Australia and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, and I'm delighted to be joined by Diane Greenwich. Diane is a leading expert on energy and climate issues in the US. She is Commissioner Emeritus of the California Public Utilities Commission and is a pre-court energy scholar with Stanford University's Pre-Court Institute for Energy. Welcome, Diane, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Delighted to be here. And we're delighted to have you. Um, we've obviously uh, had a long-standing relationship with you and you're, you're, you're a trusted advisor in, uh, the, the, uh, in the international community of energy and climate and energy efficiency experts. And, and we always enjoy catching up with our friends in California, Diane. And I, I was last there for the uh, Climate Action Summit back in... 2018, when Jerry Brown was still governor, the, the yes. Trump administration, about halfway halfway through its term, and and I remember there was a real sense when I was there, Diane, that California had kind of shouldered the load of uh, carrying the, uh, the 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 US's uh, international engla- engagement on, on on climate and energy issues, sort of taken on that that responsibility, given that the federal government has sort of withdrawn from that space. Um, obviously, a lot of water under the bridge. There's a new administration. Have, they, have your friends in the climate and energy community sort of uh, taken a sigh of relief? What's the, what's the mood in, in your <laughs> colleagues there in California? We're, we are more than happy to share the burden of moving on clean energy and climate with friends in Washington. I mean, it was, I think our attorney general, who's the lead uh, lawyer for the state of California, mm. filed 50 separate lawsuits against the Trump administration. <laughs> right. And um, a huge loss had been, uh, we're leaders on the um, fuel standards for cars under longstanding precedent in our Federal Clean Air Act. We Mm. could do it and we did it for decades. And then Trump comes in and he announces no. And this had been a carefully brokered deal with the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. I think 30 other states joined in and Trump just shut it down and all. And so it just was so irritating to say the least, but I don't know if you, if the news has um, come uh, to Australia yet, but the Biden administration just today gave California its full authority back Mm. to set fuel standards. And it's important because so many other states now join the California standards. We do a test drive for a couple of years with them. And then the feds put them in for the entire United States. Mm -hmm. So we love having friends in Washington, D.C. We wish we had more of them. It sort of speaks to that role that California has traditionally played in kind of as the engine room for new climate and energy policy for the for the entirety of the U.S. and where there is that that uh, symbiotic relationship and that partnership between the, 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 the federal level and some of those leading states like California, you can you can go further faster um, sort of trialling those those uh, uh, policies and standards, as you say, at, a, at the state level before you ramp them up nationally. Yeah. And I mean, I love my state, but we really have seen just so many states over the last decade. Uh, It's many states now that are very, very serious about climate and many of our local governments, too, that have adopted their own climate action plans. So, look, uh, let's start uh, at the high level, um, because as you say, we will dig down into what's going on on with the states. But it's important to note that we've seen an incredible shift um, in uh, the the, the U.S. federal government's approach to this topic, Um, a a shift from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. And um, this 
this is, hasn't been a subtle shift, I can think we can say. <laughs> Diane, um, President Biden, during his campaign, took a very uh, clear program of, of uh, a climate action to the election, um, and uh, he hasn't resolved from um, doing everything he can to walk the walk as he's uh, um, worked his way through his first 100 days of government. Uh, we've obviously got the climate summit, which we'll, we'll get to, but I thought it might be useful just to unpack um, some of the, the, the key items on the Biden agenda when it comes to climate and energy. It's a, it's a big agenda. We can't possibly do it all, all justice. But um, what stands out for you when it comes to the Biden administration's climate policy agenda? I think of it as uh, we have a very famous play here called Hamilton, and there's a well-known song that sort of reverberates uh, throughout. I'm not going to give away my shot. And I realize that to me is what crystallizes how President Biden is approaching climate, Hmm. which none of us really knew where he would come out because President Obama was good, but it wasn't, I would say, his top priority. And uh, the same thing with now President Biden. It hasn't been his driving force. But um, the thing I think is that he realizes as bad as sort of our split is now with the U.S. Congress, which we'll talk about, it could get worse, that we're going to have our next round of elections at the federal level in um, Uh, 2012, 2022, and we might lose our House of Representatives. So he knows things may get worse. He also really believes in taking big, bold steps. That's what he's convinced will work with the public, like on um, the vaccinations when he came in. He pledged to have 100 million done within the first 100 days. He got 200 million done, and he's hugely popular for that. So he really sees these big, bold steps matter. Um, He believes the climate science and he's trying to couch his policies uh, in climate in particular on the business side, the economic side and the labor side. And that's really a sweet spot. Again, he thinks for getting the political support. What I would say about him is, um, first of all, he has assembled the A team, the A plus team on climate and clean energy that he has our new presidential uh, envoy, John Kerry. And then the domestic czar is Gina McCarthy. Um, And then he has sort of every level running our, our departments in the cabinet, these hugely knowledgeable people. And they know the science, they know, you know, their area, but also many of them have worked in Washington. Hmm. So that means they know how federal government works and they have worked together before. So he didn't waste sort of the first month or two. Let's get up to speed. He was ready to go. He issued a very important executive order on January 27th, which laid out his basically where he's going. Um, So there was no time lost. He's got a great team. The other thing that he's done that's quite different is he describes climate as being something that's central to foreign policy and domestic security. Hmm. And that, again, is looking at it in a different way. And he talks about it's all of government. And so when you see his orders sort of wherever they are, it's not just our traditional energy agency or our environmental agency, but it's down to every single agency um, has to come up with what they're going to be doing on climate. So 
a lot of the things that he, you know, will rely upon, let's do retrofits in our buildings, let's get, you know, the electric vehicles out there. We know that that's what we have to do, but I'd say the zest with what she's doing it, the expertise with what she's doing it, and the comprehensiveness, that's really, really new here in the United States. And there is, there is a strong sense that President Biden doesn't want to get embroiled in a, in, in a lot of sort of talk about stuff without actually doing stuff. And, and because if you don't do the stuff, then you don't see the benefits on the ground. Um, and that, that seems to be the framing that I'm picking up from particularly the, um, the American Jobs Plan, this big infrastructure bill, um, which, uh, which is coming up in, the I believe, the second half of the year, Diane. Obviously, infrastructure, a broader topic, and but so much of that bill is framed through the lens of, you know, um, rebuilding America's infrastructure um, with, a, with an eye to, you know, how we can do that while addressing the, the climate challenge. Is, is that a fair reading? That's absolutely true that, um, again, he knows what resonates with people, which is it still is a lot of let's fix our roads and let's fix our bridges, but he calls it better building back better. Uh, and this was one of the calls that we uh, saw at the climate summit that people are talking about, which is internationally, if we're all going to have our national government spending money to get us out of this horrible slump we've been in because of coronavirus, let's have those dollars spent in ways that are going to address this existential crisis called climate change um, so that we're getting sort of two for one as the bang for the buck. And that's why he very much focused on instead of just he could have gone and said, um, like President Obama had, um, well, I'm going to set a, a standard for our power plants that they have to be so clean. And that's what Gina McCarthy did for about four years. Um, but he said, instead, I'm going to embrace infrastructure because that's something that I can really get influence and impacts in so many ways. And it becomes visible in people's lives, which sort of policies in Washington don't necessarily resonate with people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, oh, you can't burn coal in a power plant. I get it. But that's not necessarily feels like it's impacting me. Whereas if I can think, oh, the school that my kids go to, they're going to get money <laughs> to put in a state-of-the-art, you know, ventilation, heating system, and it's going to be healthier for them. Those are the sorts of things that I think he really likes. And I guess, you know, the, the hope would be that some of those impacts are flowing through, um, those positive impacts are flowing through well ahead of the midterms. And so the degree, it's a very, it's a very hard ask for any, any president to do well in, in, a, in a midterm election, um, Diane. Um, but to the, to the degree there is some prospect, of, you know, once you embrace the, this, this agenda, if you, you can actually point to the tangible benefits in people's lives, either in, ter- in terms of increased economic activity or rebuilding public, public infrastructure, local schools. And, and public buildings and the like, um, you know, the huge weatherization program, um, you know, upgrading the, the thermal performance of, of particularly low-income low buildings across the country. They're, they're things that people can get their arms around, well, I guess would be the political theory um, here. And, and I'll just say, um, one of the things that he's having his um, agencies and cabinet members do is scouring their budgets hmm. because Trump in some places he just didn't spend money that our Congress had authorized. And so, again, I think it was just today, um, our Secretary of Energy, um, uh, Jennifer Granholm, announced that they've got at the Department of Energy 
$35 million, or maybe it's $35 billion. I mean, the numbers are so huge these days. That wasn't spent under Trump that she's going to allocate to get directly to communities where there has been coal mining and the coal miners have lost their jobs. And the plan is that doesn't need to wait. (laughs) The Mm. money is sitting within her budget and everyone knows if she can get that in there and get some of the people in those communities starting to build the roads, starting to do this infrastructure, then it's going to set the model of this really can work, sort of the concept that President Biden has of good jobs, you know, clean energy economy and um, out in the communities that really need it. I'm hearing sort of stimulus spending. I'm hearing sort of looking between the couch cushions and finding what hasn't been spent from the previous <laughs> right. occupant of the residence. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not he- I'm not hearing sort of uh, cap and trade. Um, I'm not hearing sort of any sort of over- overarching kind of economy-wide sort of a price on carbon. Um, and I think there's good reasons for that. Uh, Diane, do you want to take us through that? Well, I would say that he did, again, his first week, he revitalized something we call the social cost of carbon, which was an effort, again, under Obama to price carbon into agency decision making. Because um, many places in the world, probably in Australia, if you're going to pass a new regulation, you have to show cost benefit. Mm -hmm. And when you put in the price of carbon, you get a lot more things happening for the climate than if Mm -hmm. you don't. Trump had dropped it way down. So um, one of the things Biden did immediately was to put that in as an executive order that all the agencies now have to use the old Obama number, um, which I think is $50 a ton. And then he's going to come out with a new one in January. So that, you know, lets us go ahead on sort of a bigger picture. Um, But he is definitely looking at those concrete actions. I mean, I have no doubt that everybody on his team would love to have carbon pricing. And at this stage, we probably don't care if it's cap and trade or carbon <laughs> tax. You know, just get it in there. And I think, again, all the studies do show that at least in economies like the United States, if we don't have a price on carbon, we're not going to get to our 2030, much less our 2050 mm-hmm. goals. But whenever you want to get, talk about the sadder state of our Congress, um, that's a no-brainer. He knows he he's just going to, you know, uh, spend a lot of political capital and capital and everyone's energy trying to get that done, and it's it's just not in the works, at least right now. Yeah, and, the, and the, I guess this speaks, uh, and maybe this is the time to raise it. Um, Diane is we've got a, a 50-50 Senate, um, you know, relying on the uh, the, the tie-breaking vote of, of the vice president, and the, and the 50 Democratic votes aren't all, aren't necessarily all in exactly the same place when it comes to climate and energy. There's a there's a there's some diversity of views at least um, within that within that caucus. Um, uh, and so the, the name of the game is really sort of understanding that body and the Democratic Party uh, senators and, and what is possible to get through, at least in the short time, so you can have that impact that we were talking about on the gro- ground relatively quickly. I, I feel like we're all getting graduate courses in political science now <laughs> about how does the U.S. Congress <laughs> operate? Um, you know, what's a filibuster? Yeah. Um, what- Budget reconciliation. Uh, <laughs> what are the rules? And and it really just gets back to what you said: is we are we have two two parties in the United States, the Democrats and the Republicans, and 
just the way it landed was that while we got Biden in the White House, we didn't get the number of changes from Republican dis- uh, uh, Democrats that, frankly, had been hoped for. So we have this amazing 50-50 split right down the center. But under U.S. rules, our vice president, Kamala Harris, can cast a uh, vote to, to stop the split. So she can do it. But we also have this rule called the filibuster, which is basically anybody in the Senate can talk forever and stop bills from being passed mm. unless you have 60 votes to override that senator. And that's one of the things you hear about, you know, do we need to get rid of that rule or not? Um, and then the other irony, I would say, is is that sort of the top Democrat on our I've forgotten, I apologize, the name of the committee, um, whether it's energy or utilities, but in the Senate, in the area of clean energy, is Joe Manchin Mm -hmm. from West Virginia. And he's about as moderate a Democrat as you can get. And he also comes from a very poor state that has lost a lot of jobs because of coal. And there's a famous political ad. He no longer runs it when he was running for office where it held up one version of our cap and trade bill from, you know, practically 10 years ago. And he had a real rifle shooting a hole through it, saying, this is what I think. But luckily, he went to Alaska on some trip and came back believing that science climate it changes real, mm-hmm. which shows people can mm-hmm. change their minds. So yep. he is in favor of getting laws through and bills passed. It's mm-hmm. just that he said, um, I don't want to leave people behind, which is why you hear Biden saying that too. And he's pretty moderate mm-hmm. and he doesn't want to lose the next election. And that's where we see um, the progressive side of the Democrat party really would love to pass Cap and trade, carbon pricing, mandates for 100 percent renewable by next year, all that stuff. But the votes aren't there. And he's a a central player in this. Um, He'd like to work bipartisan with some Republicans, but he's also a realist. If If he can't get those votes, I think he will ultimately still vote for the Democrat Democratic bills, if he sees some compromises. And uh, what about the Republicans? I, I, I think something we're very <laughs> conscious of here in Australia is the, you know, the, there is, there is um, you know, a divide between progressive and conservative thinking on on, on climate that has um, roiled our politics uh, for for the last decade or so. Um, uh, the, the the US is kind of uh, kind of that situation on steroids. To, <laughs> to some I degree. Know. Well, I. I mean, I've you know been in this so long. I remember when we on climate and on clean energy, our major environmental laws. Um, when I did research for one of my courses at Stanford, they were signed during Republican administrations, mm. um, and we used to have you know this ability to say, "Hey, nobody wants." Um, dirty water to drink. Mm. You know, nobody does. So there's a role for government. And unfortunately, we have what I call the Trump effect, which is not just Trump, but a a fair number of people in Congress just don't believe in government. I mean, Mm. they don't believe that these are the types of problems that need government leadership and policies, which as a policymaker, I disagree with. Um, and they don't believe in in the science. Uh, so it's it's not getting better. And then the other thing you may have heard about what's happening in the United States is um, at the state level, 
we have a lot of le- states that have Republican governors and mm-hmm. legislatures controlled by the Republicans, very conservative supporters of Trump, and they are um, uh, trying to enact voter suppression laws. Uh, We had one passed in Georgia, and I think I read that there are bills introduced in almost every state. They won't go through in every state, but we have a huge risk that that's going to then impact sort of what happens at our states and thereby also impact who goes into running for our Congress. Um, The last thing that I'll just mention, because I'm not sure we would otherwise touch upon it, is that when Trump was president, he successfully appointed um, about 250 federal judges. And that includes in our U.S. Supreme Court, which is the top court. Uh, He has, there's a majority of strong conservatives. And, We know any laws that Congress passes in climate or clean energy are going to be challenged in court. We know that. And unfortunately, again, I'll be direct of how I feel. You know, we have had a shift in the judiciary that the judges reviewing those lawsuits are a lot more conservative, are a lot less trusting of government. And so we are very uneasy about Mm. even if we get laws through Congress, which I think we will, um, what's going to happen when they get to the judicial system. But you got to play with the cards you're given. Well, indeed, and I suppose uh, as a as an observer of U.S. politics, um, it is it is concerning in the sense of the the durability of of action that might be taken under a under a, a Biden administration. Um, I, I feel like here in Australia, um, while we've had our challenges in this space, there is a there is an emerging sort of sensible centre when it comes to energy and climate, and we see that in the um, in some of the actions particularly being taken by state governments, um, uh, both both Liberal and Labor, um, there's not. You, you, it's hard to find a lot of difference in, in some of the some of the broad broad policy uh, uh, policies there pursuing on energy efficiency, on renewables, on, on demand management and, and the like, um, that's still emerging at the, the federal level. But I can, you can kind of see, you know, probably slower than we would like, but, you know, that, that's, that centre space being created. I'm not observing <laughs> the creation of sort of a, a, a sensible sort of space of common ground. Well, um, I'm, I'm, I'm so still the optimist that yeah. I think – If we were to get rid of what I call the Trump effect, things would settle down pretty quickly. But so long as politicians see that he can raise a lot of money and he can influence who gets elected, that effect is continuing to happen. But I'm optimistic. It's not going to go on forever. (laughs) And people ultimately, I think, are sensible and ultimately people do see government does things for them so we'll see first fuel is brought to you by the energy efficiency council a not-for-profit membership association for businesses universities governments and ngos the council's mission is to unlock the potential of energy efficiency to deliver healthy comfortable buildings productive competitive businesses and an affordable reliable and sustainable energy system for australia 
find out how your organisation can get involved, visit eec.org.au forward slash membership. Obviously, there's a big domestic agenda, but there's also a, a global role for the US, Diane. Um, and on that count, the US uh, has stepped up in emphatic fashion at last week's Climate Leaders Summit. I know you uh, you watched it with interest. What were your key takeouts from the summit? Well, um, as everyone says, the US is back. Uh, the credibility of us, again, you know, it's mixed until they see on the domestic side that we are moving ahead. And that's why uh, Biden appointed both Gina McCarthy domestic and John Kerry international so they could work hand in hand. But I think there was a, a sigh of relief, <laughs> that, you know, uh, he made it so prominent and he had the summit so quickly. Hmm. You know, he could have waited and just shown up in Glasgow, which is the next conference of the parties in, in November. And he also, um, President Biden released our new um, NDCs, the nationally determined, what are the NDCs stands for? National uh, Determination of Our Emissions. And in case... For those of you um, listening or watching this, is that what we did in the United States last week is we essentially doubled our commitment to how much we will reduce our emissions by 2030. And so that was a big step forward to say we're not just back in, but we're really in um, very seriously. The um, other thing I would say is the way this summit was organized, it was obviously, you know, leaders around the world, but it was also bringing in business and labor and the younger generation to build this support for saying we have to move ahead and we have to move ahead really quickly. So I think that um, overall, the folks in the Biden administration are quite pleased with how, how it went. There were a few technical glitches, um, but the fact that it really did get pulled off, I think people feel really good that this was a major step forward. Diane, it wouldn't be a multi-person Zoom call if there wasn't the odd technical glitch. I think that was... <laughs> well, it's like, wait a minute, we're all still mastering Zoom. I guess the federal government is too. <laughs> uh, I found it endearing. Um, so, look, uh, in terms of substance, you obviously had the, the US uh, leading, leading the charge with that, that very significant um, uh, upping of, of their ambition for 2030. And, and that was really the theme. It was, a, it was around um, uh, interim commitments, for the most part 2030 commitments from a whole range of countries, um, Japan, uh, Canada, uh, the UK, and of course the EU also raised their interim 2030 commitment um, and that, that happened prior to the summit. Um, so uh, we've got this sense that... Uh, in terms of rhetoric that uh, the ambition is raising around the world. Um, and uh, it's an absolutely crucial prerequisite. We need those targets so that we can start to work towards them. But, uh, Diane, you forwarded me an email yesterday from the, from our friends at the IEA who were making the point that, well, you know, um, the rhetoric, rhetoric's fantastic, but the reality is that we're seeing the, 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 a massive bounce back in emissions in 2021, the IEA having developed a whole bunch of capability in the last uh, 12 to 18 months for that in terms of their, their real-time analysis 
analysis of things like emissions data and they're, and they're feeding that into the conversation and the debate um, much more quickly than they, they, they have, have in the past. Um, so what's your reflection on, I suppose, um, that dynamic that we're seeing, which we want to see, that ambition is being raised, that, that, that uh, targets are, uh, are being upped, um, and, you know, the policies and the programs on the ground um, to, that will allow us to a- achieve some of that ambition in the, in the next nine years or so? First of all, in the United States, our two major sources of emissions are um, the power sector, um, electricity production, and the transportation sector. And the good news is in the power sector, because of the dramatic decrease in renewables, um, I think wind has gone down 80% in its cost in the last decade. I mean, these are dramatic, and the technology is getting better and better. So that is happening. And you just don't see new coal plants being proposed at all in the United States. Um, And the debate now is about the gas power plants. How quickly will they be phased out? What will they sort of the remainder be used for? Um, Can we get to green hydrogen? But on the electricity sector, that, that train has left the station and it's moving ahead. And what Biden can do is he can pour more money into that. He wants to build more transmission lines, which would be great to get our wind from the Midwest, um, that sort of thing. Um, On the transportation side, it's it's very interesting because we love our cars in Mm. the United States. I mean, and... But we are seeing internationally lots and lots of new models of EVs coming out. And here in California, we're about probably five years ahead of having incentives, of having, you know, a lot of publicity about they work well, et cetera. Mm. So to me, it's going to be fascinating to see in the next year, how much are we going to have uptake by consumers? Because when they go to think about a new car, there's an EV, and if you get in one and drive it, they're pretty, you know, we have one, and we'll never go back to an yep. internal combustion. And so if I'm assuming we will get money through in the infrastructure, and one of it is he wants, uh, President Biden wants to build a national EV charging system in the United mm-hmm. States, which would be huge. But I think there really is, you know, worldwide momentum on transportation and moving towards electric vehicles and the technology that we're seeing for our medium and heavy duty vehicles is super exciting um, that we're not just going to have the passenger cars. So, you know, I'm, I, I remain pretty optimistic, but all of us who study in this area, you know, the first 50% of what you're trying to do is easy compared to that last 50%. And boy, that last 20% on pushing down those emissions is going to be very, very hard. And I'll say the other thing that I want to mention is um, why I think last week's climate summit was quite useful and I think will be a force, which is because it didn't just say the U.S. is back in the Paris Climate Agreement. You know, so don't worry, we're here and we'll show up in Glasgow in November, it said, we have to move quickly. We have to move at levels we have never moved before. 
we, the United States, yeah, we've got problems and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But we're going to put the full force of the current president, the White House and the federal agency in a partnership with the businesses. There was this letter by 300 CEOs, all the major companies in the United States telling Biden the, the least stringent um, NDC he could adopt was doubling, which he did. That was the least from our business side. So I think there is really a smart part of what happened, which is we're not going to just sort of take it as it is. It is, this is it. We're serious. We have lots of imperfections, but we're not going away. And we're going to be, you know, sort of knocking on the door of every country and every leader in a country we can to say, Please join this, you know, accelerate your ambitions. Let's figure out what financing you need, et cetera. And I, I, I think that's really the smartest thing that could be done by the United States right now. Which uh, is a nice segue into what all this means for Australia, <laughs> Diane. So uh, here in Australia, just uh, for those playing along at home, we have our 2030 target of a, a 26 to 28% uh, reduction. Um, uh, we don't currently have a, a net zero uh, by 2050 commitment. We do have a commitment to getting to net zero, but we don't have a date attached to it. Um, I believe the Prime Minister said he wants to get there as soon as possible. And by 2050, you know, uh, 2050 would be great. <laughs> yes, <laughs> what he said um, and they're you know going to uh, going to the uh, I guess the, the framing that uh, you have there in the US and, and in California there is, is a strong focus on technology and technology right. being being the saviour which hey, is didn't he so- say technology not taxes that is a phrase that has passed uh, through the lips of not just the Prime Minister but uh, various ministers in our in our national government Diane just a couple of times <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, and the thing to say there is that focus on technology is something that no, is not something that's unique to Australia, but with uh, you know a number of our key trading partner, partners making commitments to net zero in the last twelve months. You've got Japan and, and South Korea and, and China committed to net zero by by twenty sixty, and then the um, and then this this new wave of commitments, which is seeing the interim targets becoming more stringent. It certainly seems um, here in Australia, to those of us that follow this closely, um, that we're becoming increasingly isolated on that front. And I, I'm just interested to know what your perspective. Is as a as a friend of Australia and, and someone that's had a few up and ups and downs in in your own national sort yeah. of climate engagement. Uh, what your perspective is on all that? Well, my my optimistic perspective is that again, when, when everybody is in Glasgow, whether it's literal or uh, virtual, um, Australia is not going to be at the back of the pack. Mm. <laughs> you know, I really do think that there's a sense of we got to pull this together. The the bit that I know, and I'm not an expert in this, is it's very interesting to me that as I understand it, um, part of it is, are you counting some of the exports to other countries mm-hmm. from uh, liquefied natural gas or other resources? Yeah. And that that's actually quite similar to Canada with their tar sands, mm-hmm. you know, where it's really um, uh, allow it with huge essentially fracking in Canada that then is releasing the resources that they're sending to the United States, which is some of the con. And then in preparing for this, I started reading about um, 
the United States has some um, little bit of a dirty laundry there, too, that there was also released last week um, what was called the U.S. International Climate Finance Plan, which I recommend people, at least if you like this area to look at, which said that um, not only are we going to up our commitment that Calo- that the United States is making of just putting money out there to developing countries, but we're going to systematically look through our various international organizations in the United States, our, our government, that are that are involved in international finance, because um, it turns out, you know, that we have been doing a lot of international finance for fossil fuel development. And so I think that we're going to get difficult conversations. But again, if if the United States is willing to say, look, at we're we're because this is what it looks like that plan is saying. We're going we're gonna to change dramatically how we approach finance. Mm. And climate is going to be front and center. And we're going to stop giving out financial instruments that are encouraging development of fossil fuels around the globe, even though we have companies that benefit from those investments. And so, and we know, of course, with China, that's one of the issues as well, that they're financing a lot of coal plants not just in China, but around the world. And I think South Korea said they're going to stop their financing of coal plants outside of South Korea. So this is where, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see how all the countries really deal with not just sort of cleaning up things within their own geographic limit, but where, frankly, it's been an economic benefit to be, exporting some of this pollution mm. and and I, and I think that there is a recognition it counts mm. <laughs> you know we, you can't just say and the, and for years in California I know we need to get on we could claim we have a wonderfully clean um, electricity system because all the coal plants were built outside of California and there were a lot. We used to uh, rely on coal for almost 50% of our electricity imported into California. And all we were doing was saying, let other people suffer the benefits, uh, suffer the harm yep. from the coal mining, from the uh, burning of coal. And under our climate law in California, we clean that up. The rule is out-of-state imports count exactly the same in terms of your greenhouse gas emission as what you're using in, in within the state. And so I think that's going to be an evolution as we're looking at climate internationally, that it's not just what you're doing domestically, it's also what you're doing um, uh, beyond your own borders. Well, certainly those interrelationships are uh, a fairly uh, front and centre in the in the local debate. Um, there's, there's an awful lot of interest uh, at the minute, Diane, in Australia about carbon border adjustment mechanisms and what that might yeah. mean for Australia. Because I think I think the EU is planning to start them, and that has people pretty worried. Um, but it's a, it's something which I understand has been a, a topic under discussion in the US as well uh, in various quarters. Um, probably not as far along in the conversation. In the US as it is is in the EU, um, you know, there's some conversation about how material um, a, a C-BAM would be for Australia if EU was to adopt it. Just 
just because of the shape of our exports to the EU are not necessarily um, not necessarily ones that would uh, would um, be hugely consequential for our exporters. But if this becomes an accepted practice in global trade, then potentially it is something that um, that could have an impact. Um, and th- thinking about, um, I guess, the system, the global global economic system in an, in a holistic way and, and interrelationships in a in a world where both our our traditional allies in the in the EU and the UK and 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 the US, uh, uh, you know, are going in a certain direction, and our and our major trading partners in our region uh, are also flying the flag. Um, it's something that uh, is sharpening the mind. I think we can say, Diane, <laughs> and I, I agree with you. I think that um, I think that as we as we move to get towards Glasgow, the the feeling is um, that we we should be able to get to a net zero by 2050 commitment. Um, I think the open question is that interim target and, you know, given the particular um, uh, dynamics um, in, in the government, whether that's something that's, that's a bridge that they'll be able to cross um, between now and Glasgow. But we, we shall watch with interest. Well, there, I think you're going to have a lot more. I, again, I'm not an expert on Australia, but um, the pressure is going to be building. I mean, um, it's not like John Kerry is going to just sit in D.C. No. Um, he's fully vaccinated <laughs> and he and his entire team are going to be really having those hard discussions. Well, Diane, we're, we're out of time. I just want to thank you for um, once again being so generous in sharing your Insights. It's always a lot of fun catching up and, and no more than now because there's so much happening in this space um, and it is very exciting. There's reason for optimism. There's a hell of a lot of work to do between now and where we where we need to get to, but um, it's, it's nice to have the global community coming together to have the US, you know, re, uh, reinstating its its role as, as a global leader in this space, and um, looking forward to doing what, what we can here at the Energy Efficiency Council to make sure that the Australia and the US are, are working closely together um, in that shared objective. Well, I wanted to thank you for your leadership over the years, Robs, and the uh, the council itself. That it's really important work that you guys are are doing, and. Um, yeah, it's fun to be back in the international space again. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of First Fuel. If you have comments, you can find us on Twitter. Diane is at Diane Greenwich and my handle is at Luke Menzel. And to keep up to date on the latest in energy efficiency, energy management and demand response, you can follow the Energy Efficiency Council at EE Council. If Twitter is not your thing, you can email the team. The address is firstfuel at eec.org.au and make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to First Fuel in your podcast app of choice. And to learn more about the show, including upcoming live recordings, uh, visit eec.org.au forward slash podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye from us and we'll catch you soon.